You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 87 for June 22nd, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about health and safety using our own stories and experiences from the field, which may or may not include stories of alligators, wild boars, giant mosquitoes, fire ants, and extreme heat. And also, just a side note, we had some uh, serious recording issues right at the start of this episode, so we had to try something we'd never done before, which, of course, always goes well the first time. Um, I've managed to edit this thing within an inch of his life, and uh, it sounds okay, but there are some auditory artifacts still remaining, so apologies for that. If you'd like to fix those problems, then please go over to the APN website and donate to us so we can (laughs) upgrade our system. So, go mix up your DEET and sunscreen paste because the CRM Archaeology podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Doug in Scotland. Hello. And Bill in Arizona. Good morning. All right, so today we're going to talk about health and safety issues. Um, I think... When we went to record this last time, uh, Doug mentioned that, didn't we just talk about this? But it was like back on, I don't know, episode five or something like that. <laughs> so it's like three years ago. So I think we're due for a, we're due for a health and safety conversation, um, especially with the weather starting to kick up in a lot of different areas. I mean, some people are going to be saying uh, it's already been 100 degrees here for a long time. So, um, yeah, Bill, we'll get to you in a minute. <laughs> but, uh, so what we plan to talk about today, now whether or not we get to all this um, remains to be seen. Maybe we'll do another episode midsummer or something like that. But um, we plan to talk about dehydration, um, you know, uh, a lot of insect stuff, bug repellent, um, some different viruses and things like that that you could be exposed to, um, sun exposure uh, issues, different kinds of you know, UVA, UVB, um, sunscreen, stuff like that, and some stuff you can do to sort of mitigate um, uh, even needing sunscreen, you know, things like that. Um, And then we'll, uh, hopefully in the second segment, we'll make it to insects. We'll talk about the Zika virus a little bit. We'll talk about ticks. Um, We'll talk about ants. And then animals, we'll bring those up. Got a lot of different animals to mention and talk about, depending on what part of the country you live in. And then for the third segment, I've got on the slate some other issues such as silicosis, valley fever, hantavirus, you know, dealing with rusty metal. If you ever work around mine sites or anything with like, um, you know, old cans and stuff like that, you've got to worry about rusty metal. So, you know, trash dumps that smell funny, stuff like that. I mean, I, I remember being on a mine site that, you know, clearly smelled like almonds, um, which usually means cyanide. So anyway, um, so that's what we're going to talk about. But let's go right into dehydration since that's becoming a big one and uh bill works and lives in arizona and it's starting to get super hot down there i'd imagine so bill what you got to say about dehydration starting to get super hot you know it's crazy (laughs) because every winter i always forget that i'm in the desert while i'm you know hanging out and doing preposterous stuff that other people don't get to do in the winter you know hiking camping with my family in November, you know, with them wearing shorts and stuff like that, swimming for Easter, we always forget that this day is going to come where it's like, you know, 115 outside, you know, and my air conditioning bill is astronomical. But um, yeah, dehydration is like one of the things that I always am worried about when I'm uh, with, you know, just with my kids, you know, hanging out and them going to school and playing outside, but especially when I'm with crews. So the the one thing that you need to know about uh, dehydration is that if you're starting to feel any kind of physical effects at all, dizziness, uh, maybe a headache, um, anything else like that, that that's you, you need to start taking precautions like right away. Um, So the, it's difficult for you to monitor um, dehydration when you've been, you know, working out there for multiple days in a row, because sometimes just heat alone can actually cause a lot of these symptoms of dizziness and headaches and stuff. So you can actually be hydrated, but because you've been outside where it's 105 every day for the last four or five days in a row, that really actually takes its toll on you. But um, both heat and dehydration are um, extreme concerns down here in the desert. So my tips always for people, when they're out here in the desert is to make sure that you drink water. 
you know, it seems like that's a pretty no-brainer type of activity, but it's kind of crazy how fast you can lose water down mm-hmm. here or how fast you can lose water just in general when you're outside. Um, in the desert, it's a little bit easier to monitor that stuff because you're just soaked with sweat. So if you're <laughs> soaked with sweat, you should be drinking small sips of water all the time. But if you're working back east, you know, Florida, Mississippi, North Carolina, you're probably soaked with sweat like all the time. Mm-hmm. Your clothes probably, in fact, never even really dry because there's so much humidity. That's where it's really hard for you to make sure that you're you're hydrated because you may not feel like you uh, need to drink more water because it, you just may not feel dehydrated or you may not be seeing the signs because your clothes are soaked all the way down to the socks all the time with sweat. Mm-hmm. But you still need to be sipping water. And it, it, it's the most difficult to monitor water consumption when you're doing excavation because you're not with a little water thing all the time, you know, taking little sips. So when I first started, I used to um, use water bottles and I always made fun of the guys down here in Arizona that were using the platypus or the camelback because I thought it was like a silly children's flexi straw that they were <laughs> slurping out of all the time. But I realized there's no way that you can stay hydrated down here without having that thing because you need to be taking a little swallow of water like every three or five minutes mm-hmm. uh, i mean i'm kind of big and i sweat a lot but i can drink three liters of water before lunchtime so in like four or five hours i drink like three liters and then after lunch i probably drink another two or three liters and that's in a 10 hour day um other people they drink you know at a, at a lesser rate uh but um you should always be having some kind of sip every few minutes. Okay. That's really the, that's really the only way that you can uh, defend yourself from dehydration because uh, by the time you start feeling the effects, you're already dehydrated and you're already actually, in fact, mm-hmm. in danger. Yeah, uh, that's totally right. And, you know, I'm in the Civil Air Patrol up here in Reno, and we have a um, – I'm actually the squadron commander, and we have like 45 cadets, so 12 to 18-year-olds, and we're constantly talking about dehydration here uh, up in Reno in the summertime, because when these guys do outdoor activities, they're usually in their, it's called a BDU, you know, the battle dress uniform, that camo sort of typical army looking uniform. That's what they wear outside. And it's just this heavy cotton thing that they, that they wear in the middle of the, in the middle of the summer. Um, so, you know, we're always talking about dehydration and, and it's no different for us archeologists. And one of the ways, and, and this was this was really crucial. I actually use this a lot out in the southeast because you're absolutely right, Bill. The minute you walk out the door on July 1st in South Carolina, you're drenched in sweat. You know, you're just absolutely drenched in sweat, and there's nothing yeah. you can do about it. And so two things I wanted to mention about that. One, about water consumption. There are some metrics, and people always say, oh, you should drink X amount of water, blah, 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 blah. That's kind of just as much bullshit as drinking eight 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 ounce glasses of water a day okay that was invented like 50 years ago and there's no science to it you need to drink as much water as your body needs per day okay so what you need to do is learn how to read whether or not your body actually needs water if you stop sweating you need water in fact you're you're well beyond the point where you need water if you stop sweating yeah you're close to hospitalization if you stop sweating yeah. Totally, totally. But one of the easy ways we can tell, because if you're drinking enough water, you should have to pee. If you don't have to pee at once throughout the day, you're not drinking enough water. But when you do go, um, we're, we're going to link to a few different uh, resources on the show notes for this podcast. But there is a urine color chart, and there's eight levels on it that uh, this is one of the ones that people mostly use. And on the one I'm going to link to, there's actually a red line on it that says, if you're below this red line, then you need to start drinking water, or you should have been drinking water all the time. Um, but basically, it's a little yellowish Munsell chart for your pee. <laughs> and, you know, just take a look at it. If it's, if, if you can actually see it really well while you're peeing and it's, and it's, and it's got that starting to get that yellow color, you're simply not drinking enough water. Right. Uh, and, and I think yeah. for me, if I'm not going once every like hour and a half to two hours when it's really hot, then I'm just not drinking enough water. You know, it's, it starts to get that sort of sickly jaundicey color to it and that's not good um <laughs> but uh i'm looking at the chart now and like the the division between safe and not safe if you're like at your house yeah. or whatever it's not really i mean if you're at your house or you're in the sure. office the looking at level three and four here you're not it doesn't seem like you're in danger you're not going to be having headaches right. or whatnot like you know you'll be fine if you're in that range you probably should have more water but or mm-hmm. more coffee but, uh, well, yeah. and you're not, if you're out in the field though, and you're at level four, then you probably should start drinking now because 
the water you drink now doesn't like instantly it's not like a gas tank where it just instantly goes into the <laughs> tank and you can use it it takes a while for your body to metabolize yeah. that for it to go from your stomach into your actual body you know an hour or two so if you've already got headaches or your urine's looking like this thing in the chart then you uh, you know you're right now you're in trouble you should act now because in an hour you're going to be having some serious damage but if you take action now 2 hours from now you should be okay yeah and there's been there's been one or two times in my CRM career actually in my, my entire life where i just uh i feel like where I just got close, and I was drinking a ton of water this one time. It was actually down in El Centro, California last year in uh, September. I think it was September, maybe August. Um, we had to go back and finish up some stuff. It was 110 plus, zero vegetation, you know, hot sand. And me and one other girl were out there. We're trying to finish this, um, trying to finish this survey up. And I actually did stop sweating, and and I was slamming the water. I mean, I was slamming the water, and and I stopped sweating. And that's when I knew, and we were a little ways away from the truck. And I told her, I was like, listen, we've got to go. I, I, I'm finished. And she was like, yep, yeah, we're done. And uh, had to get back to the truck. And I basically just sat in the truck, drank some water. I drank some Gatorades and sat there in the air conditioning with the truck pointed away from the sun in the shade. And, uh, and that, that calmed me down. I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything. But that's the closest I've ever gotten uh, yeah. in my life, you know, was last year doing that. And that just totally hit me by surprise. And I think part of the problem was I had just come off a four-day. So... I was probably just naturally dehydrated from being on a four day because I don't typically drink that much water to begin with, you know, like when I'm not working or hiking or something like that. So I probably started with not enough water in my system and then bam, you know, we hit 115 degree temperatures and desert and I was done. So, yeah. Uh, the other thing, so just like you said there, being aware and having that, like you should be aware of your physical situation. Um, and I, you know, this gets into a whole gray area of, um, you know, what's appropriate in the field or whatnot, but there's a lot of folks who are kind of tough guys or tough girls. They just want to like tough it out. They'll just keep digging, even though they're in pain, they'll just keep walking, even though they're dehydrated or right or whatever. But that's not a very smart, uh, plan, especially when you're in the desert or something like that, mm -hmm. because when someone goes from lightheaded when they start to feel lightheaded or start to feel headaches or heat cramps or something like that, that's the boundary towards them being in hospitalization. And right. you really only have like a few minutes and it depends on the individual, but they can go from like lightheaded to hospitalization and passed out in like five minutes. <laughs> so that's the time when you need to start going. And also if you've gone to unconscious and you're that dehydrated, um, you know, your brain is stopping working. We're talking mm -hmm. about physical effects for the rest of your life so if somebody starts saying i don't feel so good i've got headache you got to go right then unless you want to try to drag them across you know the desert uh, or through the forest for a mile or whatever when they pass out and if they pass out they've you got like three minutes to get them to air conditioning so you know it's just not a good idea to do that um yeah um i was just gonna add a comment on that and say also be careful um especially in some the more mountainous areas, so the Rocky Mountains, um, out west and stuff, is we're talking about like you know dehydration. But you also have to be careful about um, you know working in the high deserts and temperature drops because um, mm -hmm. in the summer you can actually end up getting like hypothermia, and that's just real simple because temperature will drop down to you know 40 or 50 at night, and after you've been sweating all day. You'll be, you know, your clothes will be soaked through, and especially if you're camping and stuff, people will just not think to. They'll finally, after you know, it's gone from 100 degrees down to you know, 50 or 60. They're like, ah, oh, feels so nice. Mm -hmm. um, but really, you do need to change out of your clothes if you have any sort of sweaty clothes in the evening when the temperature drops, because you'll end up not really paying attention, and then before you know it, your your core body temperature starts dropping. And it, it does occasionally happen to a lot of backpackers is they'll end up with, um, you know, hypothermia in the middle of June or Ju July because you're pretty high up. You've been sweating all day. You're, you're so used to trying to get rid of all the heat that it just keeps going and then you lose control. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's totally right. Um, and, and while we're talking about heat exposure, we may as well roll right into sun exposure um, for the last part of this segment. Um, so one of the things you know, about sun exposure is, of course, we're going to talk about sunscreen when we're going to talk about this. But before we even talk about sunscreen, 
we should take a lesson from, you know, the indigenous communities in like, you know, North Central Africa and things like that. You don't see them walking around in shorts and a t-shirt or walking around like, like every guy over 50 thinks that when it's hot out and he's going to work on his RV, he has to take his short shirt off and put on his cut off jean shorts. Right. But, uh, that, that actually doesn't keep you cooler. Not in my neighborhood. <laughs> well, yeah, not. They don't do they don't do that in my neighborhood. No, they're smarter down there. But uh, you know, it, it's um, like like I I actually used to do uh, when I was working down in CRM, especially in the southeast. I was like I was really obstinate about it. I was like, man, I just need to be you know I'm, I'm trying to shovel test. I'm I'm moving around. I can't have this long sleeve clothing, so I would wear short sleeve shirts. I'd have my you know my my big hat on, but. I would wear like short sleeve shirt and stuff like that, and I just apply the sunscreen like it was, you know, just like crazy. And I was just adamant about about not wearing anything over that. Now maybe in the southeast, you know, for somebody like me who's a big guy and I sweat a lot, maybe that is true. Maybe I can't be comfortable doing that. But uh, either way, in the out here in the west, like especially all last year um, when we were working down in Southern California in the heat, just like constantly. I mean, I have these loose fitting. I'll, I'll wear a, a dry wicking shirt as my base layer, like a t-shirt. And then I had another dry wicking shirt, um, as my outer layer. And that was just a button up shirt that I would, sometimes I would button it up. So most of the time I wouldn't because my backpack was keeping it from flying around. And, uh, and I would keep my, my arms completely covered up. Now I wouldn't do my hands. Um, but I do know people that wear like sun gloves and things like that. Just a really, really thin pair of gloves. They're fingerless gloves and they'll just wear them to protect their hands a little more. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the best thing you can do right there. And you can even get a lot of the clothing, the, the more expensive clothing, like some of the ex officio stuff and things like that. They have an SPF rating on their own. Um, so you can, you can get a little bit of sun protection just from the clothing and then maybe apply some sunscreen underneath that. So, um, you know, before we get into sunscreen, you guys clothing, Bill, Bill, I'm, I'm sure people wear, they, they cover up their arms and things like that down in the down in the arizona area when they're working right <laughs> yeah unless they're crazy <laughs> <laughs> unless they're crazy yeah no no i mean it, it goes both ways uh mm-hmm. i found you know um well first of all when it comes to the clothing i have my own taste right everybody has their own taste so yeah each to their own but i think you are right about covering up i found that uh, my hair's black, so my head gets super hot unless I put like a bandana or a hat on, right? And I actually mm-hmm. sizzled my ears once years ago in Nevada, actually White Pine County, and it wasn't very hot, but we were at like 5,500, 5, 6,000 feet all day, and the tops of my ears got burned. So now I actually have to wear a, um, I have to wear a, like a cowboy hat or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, like uh, you, your clothing and the stuff that you bring with you is is really important, uh, not only for protecting yourself but also for protecting other people. So I always try to carry bandanas with me because, um, you know, I just wear them on my head most of the time. But also, when somebody is in serious trouble, you can kind of cool their neck a little bit to try and bring them back to life, so that you don't have to carry them all the way to the jeep. You notice how like all my techniques are basically so I don't have to carry anyone. <laughs> It's a big concern when you're five miles from the vehicle. Uh, yeah, I'm basically taking care of myself by not having to take care or taking care of other people, so I don't have to carry them. Right. Uh, yeah. So the bandana thing, and then another thing I do is so you know now I do have a backpack that has the um, platypus hydration system in it, and it's got the tube, and I go ahead and drink the water. And I personally, even when it gets hot in the tube, like so the there's some people who will take the first drink off the tube and then spit it out because they don't like the you know tea like heat of the tube but if you just keep drinking more water and make sure the water's flowing through the tube then you don't it never gets super hot in there but i still drink that part and then another thing i'll do is freeze like a like one of those little mini water bottles full of pedialyte and then put that in the same sheath where the hydration bladder's at because that frozen little block, well, it helps keep my water minorly cool. But as that thing thaws out, basically you have like a dose of Pedialyte that if someone actually gets uh, in trouble out there, not only can you take that cool little thing and put it on the back of their neck with the bandana, just hold it on the back of their neck so they can cool down, but they can also drink it and get electrolytes. And I actually more than one time have given that to someone and watched them come back to life long enough for us to get back to the car. And then another thing that we do is 
well, I don't know about we, but at least the crews I work with, freeze the Pedialyte Pops for children and then put them in the water, the orange water jug in the Jeep or whatever. So it's not only iced, but then at the end of the day, you can have a little popsicle of Pedialyte. And that way you know that everyone on your crew is getting at least one dose of Pedialyte. Nice. And that stuff works way better than Gatorade. Gatorade, it takes, you know, I could literally pour, just pour the water into that entire huge thing of Gatorade, stir it around with a spoon and drink that, and I'd still feel like garbage. <laughs> but Pedialyte's designed for, you know, children that are like in the hospital or, you know, kids that are so young they can't really eat solid food. So, you know, they, of course, need to drink like an eighth of a cup or a few tablespoons of Pedialyte, a tiny baby. But if you drink half a thing of Pedialyte when you get back mm -hmm. to your hotel room, you won't feel any effects of dehydration or anything for the whole time you're out there. I guarantee it. Nice. I like it. All right. We're going to come back to this because we've got a lot more to say about uh, sun protection and things like that. But we're going to take a break real quick uh, to discuss, to play an ad for PCS, Professional Certification for Sciences, and our jobs board. Uh, we've had a few jobs listed on there, but I'm encouraging everybody, while the job listings are free, if you're posting somewhere else and you're hearing this, why not just post on PCS at the same time? It doesn't cost you a dime. Uh, and what could it hurt? So post on there. Uh, and if you're a job seeker, ask your employers why they're not posting on PCS. So there you go. Uh, back in a second. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and employment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the jobs page for job listings in contract archaeology. Post a job for just $50. All of PCS's jobs are verified and checked for completeness. Find PCS jobs at www.pcscourses.com forward slash jobs. PCS a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. All right, we're back, and we're going to continue this discussion about um, sun exposure a little bit because we didn't quite finish that, and then we'll get into the fun topic of um, mosquitoes, ticks, and ants and other nasty insects. But for now, um, we were talking about loose-fitting clothing, so wear loose-fitting clothing. Um, it'll help you out, trust me. Um, preferably light colored loose fitting clothing just because you know the sun this darker colors absorb more um, radiation from the sun so they'll actually make you hotter um, and uh, yeah so do that and, and keep in mind too that it doesn't have to be 110 degrees out for you to to adhere to these rules if you're working in the desert and the high desert at four or five thousand feet altitude and it's only 75 degrees guess what you're still getting sunburned and you're still getting uh cancer <laughs> you're still getting all the the harmful effects of the sun you're still getting dehydrated you might not realize it but you are um so you know keep all those things in mind um so let's talk about sunscreen real quick um i've got a linked into the show notes here i've got something on the from the fda on sun exposure guidelines and uh, they talk about sunscreen in there. One of the things you need to know when you're looking for a sunscreen is you need to know what UVA is and UVB. So those are the different spectrums of ultraviolet radiation. Um, UVA causes skin cancer. UVB causes sunburns. Okay. Now, um, even when it's a cloudy day, I was putting sunscreen on on a cloudy day one time. And somebody asked me, he's like, what are you doing? It's totally cloudy out. And I was like, yeah, because... I couldn't remember which one it is, and I still can't remember. But one of those makes it through the clouds pretty easily. One of those, one of those, um, um, one of those wavelengths, they make it through the clouds real easily. So you can still get harmful effects. I think it's probably UVA um, because you just don't get sunburned on a cloudy day. But you can still get cancer-causing effects from the sun um, on a cloudy day. So you know the sun's up there; it's still there. It's just you can't see it very well, but it's still still causing. Um, still causing harm so when you look for sunscreen look for uva and uvb protection it'll probably just say broad spectrum protection which does usually cover those but it should also say that in the fine print somewhere so um you know in in reference to the whole cloudy day thing um doug you've been in scotland for a while do people even use sunscreen out there <laughs> do they even sell it in the stores <laughs> <laughs> do you even have sun <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. Like right now, we're in, we're in the the summer, so we're pretty far north. So the sun doesn't set till like nine or ten, um, actually ten or eleven, and uh, yeah, all sorts of fun. But no, it's a, it's actually a really too many archaeologists over here end up with a really crap uh, skin conditions because they basically do what you're talking about, Chris. Oh, it's cloudy. 
I don't need to do anything. Or even then, yeah. it, people will get really badly burned. So they'll be like, oh, the sun only came out for an hour. Um, but when your skin is not used to the sun and you're the color of milk, um, it, 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 there's, yeah. no, there's no natural <laughs> protection. You pretty much burn. So people do have, um, yeah, suntan lotion, sunscreen, whatever you want to call it. And it, but it is like you, you run into so many new archaeologists. I remember the, the last commercial dig I did. Um, at, at lunch, I handed it off to um, what, the new, new guy first day. He's like, Oh, no, no, I don't need it. I'm like, No, trust me, you'll need it. And he's like, Oh, uh, so I for, forced him to put it on, but even then it was too late. Like two hours later, he had a sunburn. Um, yeah. It's just you don't think about it. But honestly, if people are smart, they do definitely need to put on some sort of protection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You always have to put it on no matter where you're at. I mean, it doesn't matter. And when you say, I just like to point out when you say your skin's not used to the sun, that's like the people that say, Oh, I don't, uh, my ears don't ring after concerts anymore because my ears are used to it. No, you can't hear in those spectrums anymore. <laughs> so, um, you know, you can't hear at those wavelengths anymore. It's the same thing with sun exposure. If you're not getting burned anymore, it's because you're, you're probably already leathery right? Like your skin is just <laughs> repelling the skin naturally now. <laughs> well, I, I work with a, a lot of folks, you know, that have brown skin naturally mixed people, um, uh, yeah. either Asian, Native American, African, they don't, and you know, me personally, I don't actually have to wear sunscreen to be out there. I play out with my kids and it's like, you know, 110 and we're outside all day long and mm -hmm. I don't have a shirt on and I don't get burned. I don't get roasted. Right. So for me to like, miss a day of sun sunscreen or whatever it's not that's not too disastrous right but the question is what's going to happen a million years from now and i'm not i'm not really up on what's the skin cancer rate for you know uh, mm -hmm. sub-saharan africans versus native american versus whatever like i don't actually know if i'm more likely to get skin cancer in the future but if i've got if everybody on the crew is putting on sunscreen and it's right there next to me. And we know that this will reduce the amount of rays, right? Set like, the example. Why, yeah, well, why not just put it on? It's right there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do put on sunscreen. I don't have to put it on. I'm not going to burn. My ears have gotten roasted, like I said, because we were, like, you know, above the clouds, basically. And so the, the UV rays were, you know, much more powerful up there. Uh but I don't necessarily get sunburns. Uh, people with enough melanin in their skin are not going to get sunburns, no matter how long we're out there. Uh, however, you just use it because it's right there. Well, that's the question, Bill. It, it, it's funny. It's it's good you bring that up because I never actually thought about that before. I did know that, you know, the increased amount of melanin in dark-skinned uh, individuals, um, you know, like you said, anywhere from Asian to African American or, or whatever, um, that does tend to prevent sunburns or at least minimize sunburns but what about uva you know how does that how does the increased amount of melanin in your skin affect skin cancer do you know any of the stats on that at all no i don't and and yeah. i also don't know a, you know i don't know a whole bunch of uh hispanic laborers or african-american laborers that we've been working outside all day long right but i think that probably what hurts archaeologists the most is that we don't actually work outside all the time mm -hmm. so we're inside you know, for uh, four or five days, then we're outside for four or five days, then we're right. inside for two weeks, then we're outside for two months. And so it ke we keep going in and out. So we never actually, in fact, are out there long enough or all the time, like, you know, say a construction worker or mm -hmm. a, a landscaper, somebody who actually works outside all the time. But I'll tell you what, even landscapers down here, construction guys, Hispanic folks, they wear sunscreen. So I, I don't know if everybody's wearing it, but I, I know I've seen them put it on. I've been at the construction site. They got brown skin like me, and they still put it on too. Well, one thing I've noticed, especially about Hispanic people, I, I know up here, is they're, they're, they're smart about it. They're constantly wearing long sleeve, loose-fitting clothing and big floppy hats and, and things like that. It's not yeah. a cultural statement. It's smart. You know, you're working outside all day. You cover up, so maybe they don't need to wear um, – uh, to wear sunscreen like that because they're they're protecting themselves with their clothing, like we said at the beginning of the segment. And I think Doug's pulled some pulled some numbers down. What do you got, Doug? Yeah. So um, according to the CDC, um, basically it. So 
Not surprising. Men have higher skin cancer rates than women. Um, I'm pretty sure that's just from, as you're talking about, Chris, all those dudes in their 50s when they go to wash the RVs. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to your neighborhood. I don't want to see <laughs> cut off short, naked top men. Nah, that's... Yeah, actually, so, nice. so for... Um, and it's gone up, so... About 10 years ago, white guys were about 20%, and now it's found a little under 30%. Um, but basically for sort of black, it's it's under 5%, and Hispanic is around 5% as well. Um, and then same for like Hispanic and, you know, Native American um, are pretty much on the same sort of range. You know, it, it goes up and down, and it's about 5%, and that's for guys. And then... Women tend to be pretty much the same for when it comes to, you know, black, Hispanic, and so forth. It's it's white women who have probably about 10% less skin cancer than men. Um, but yeah, it, it is a very small percentage. But um, yeah, dying of skin cancer is still not fun. So <laughs> no, no. Okay. Well, I guess I don't have to wear it anymore then. <laughs> I'll go back to the old days where I never wore it, and I used to wear short sleeve shirts, right? <laughs> well, the numbers the numbers make sense based on anecdotal evidence, because like I said, I always see Hispanic people dressing properly, and according to Bill, black people don't like to go outside or hike or anything, except for him, so <laughs> I remember you saying that before. Hey, it's not me, it's the National Park Service, like, they're like, yeah, how right. can we get more black people to go outside? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm out here, you guys don't see me, my whole family? Nice. Yeah, no, I yeah, I I don't know. I I'm pretty sure I, there's plenty of black folks out there hiking and doing all that stuff, right? But I guess not as many as white people. Yeah, but even then, like you're still looking at a couple of percentage points of people who do get skin cancer. So, um, yeah, mm -hmm. I'd say better safe than sorry. All right, well, let's shift uh, shift gears a little bit and head straight over to bugs. So. Um, I'm going to tell uh, a quick story real quick just to illustrate my hatred of mosquitoes and fire ants and things like that. Um, so I was working in the southeast. Actually, I was working in Florida. Um, all the southeast has a huge problem with mosquitoes and ticks and things like that. But um, in this particular case, I was working in south Florida down south of Lake Okeechobee. Uh, that's like south central Florida between the lake and probably the Everglades. Kind of imagine that area. And... Uh, we were working in this, um, we were doing shovel tests down these rows of, of tall sugarcane fields, right? And it, it's sugarcane that had been let to, allowed to just grow for like the last 20 years. I think it was 20 years or something like that. They hadn't used it in a long time. Um, they hadn't used the fields in a long time. They'd abandoned them by uh, U.S. sugar, so they just were overgrown and taken over. So, you know, we're crashing through these things. It's the kind of thing where you stick your shovel and your screen out in front of you to get rid of all the spider webs and stuff like that. And so occasionally, uh, on like the corner of a plot, you know where two roads intersect there'd be this big cement platform where they would um they would stage gear back when they used to use it and i had come out of my transect and i was waiting for um, a friend of mine that was working and i had come out of my transect and they were just coming out of there he, he was just coming out of his transect or, or he was doing his last shovel test <laughs> all of a sudden i hear this scream and he just comes running out he'd thrown his screen in his shovel i don't even know where it was he comes running out onto the middle of this platform and I mean, I wasn't about to run over to him because he he looked like uh, he looked like somebody I didn't want to be around at the time. So um, I was going to wait and play this one out. And he took off his backpack, took off his shirt, took off his boots, and took off his pants and started slapping himself. And he was just covered in fire ants, just covered in fire ants. So oh. um, I know as far as I as far as I know, there's nothing that can like that you can apply to yourself that will prevent you from getting fire ants. If you're in an area where you're working with fire ants, some of the things you can do. Or like I've seen people duct tape their um, the bottom of their uh, um, their pants to their boots, or tuck in their socks to their pants so they don't get anything up inside, that, which also helps for ticks. Um, and you know I've seen people do that, but on this project, I mean it was it was July August. I mean I was I'm surprised I'm still alive today. Quite honestly, I'm glad it was only two two months uh, that I was down there, maybe a month and a half. I don't know, but either way, it was super hot, super humid, and. And every morning I would put on, uh, I started with uh, DEET, the 100% DEET stuff that comes in the little bottle that they say, you know, <laughs> the minute it touches like clothing or plastic, it's ruined. <laughs> and and uh, 
So I was putting 100% deed on my arms because, again, I was an idiot and I wasn't wearing long sleeve shirts. I had short sleeve shirts on. So I was putting it on my arms, my neck, my head, my ears, my face. And then I was covering that with SPF 50 or more um, sunscreen. And when you when you get higher on the SPF numbers, it's like a thick, thick, you know, almost a paste that sunscreen is. So you mix that with the DEET. And I was just putting on this disgusting DEET sunscreen paste. And I was... I was relatively new in the field, and I didn't really know what I was doing. One of the things we forgot to mention about sunscreen is you need to reapply it every two hours, even more if you're sweating a lot. Um, the uh, FDA actually says they're not allowed to put sweat proof on sunscreen, but they do anyway, um, because it's not actually true. So, And it could give people a false sense of security. But you should apply every one and a half to two hours regardless, okay, if you're out in the sun. You should always do that. And probably the same for the DEET and things like that if you're actually putting that on. But either way, um, you know, the DEET and the sunscreen were helping to protect me from uh, from sunburns. I didn't get any sunburns, which was good, so I, I guess I was putting it on enough. But uh, it was just – it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare working around, um, you know, mosquitoes that were the size of small helicopters, um, ticks, and uh, and all that stuff. Now, one thing with ticks real quick too, just to continue the story, I've I've – had ticks on me a lot, you know, working in the Southeast, um, and, and actually in the Midwest, but I've never had a, I've, I found them on me and then I've just flicked them away. I've actually never had a tick embedded in me, which is strange. Um, I've had, pl- I've worked around plenty of ticks. I've, I've been on crews where every single other person went back to the hotel room. They had 15 ticks dug into their skin and I had nothing. So I don't know what it is with my skin. I guess I'm just not tasty enough or, or what the deal is. I've, I've heard things about, you know, different types of skin and, and whether or not you're susceptible to mosquitoes and ticks. I mean, I'm definitely susceptible to mosquitoes. I've had plenty of mosquito bites, but um, um, ticks, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I yeah. think that, I think you're now permanently radioactive from using that much 100% D. <laughs> like now your chromosomes have changed. Like right? you could, you could probably join like the Justice League or whatever, but I mean, just for bugs. <laughs> I think I'm a superhero. I think I am. So the hundred percent deed, I always get, I always kind of freak out about that because, uh, I mean, the bottle's super small and it's like yeah. you know, the the <laughs> actual warning sheet on it is bigger than the actual bottle is. You know, you open it up and it's like warning: don't let a baby ever touch this. If you have a seizure, you know, and it's kind of like what a seizure from bug spray. So I always go for like the 30 to 50% because I, I actually don't believe – well, I saw the um, – we'll link to it in the show notes, but there's also a thing from Consumer Reports where the mm-hmm. people who make it say that 30% DEET uh, – 30% or higher has an equal protection value for up to eight hours. So if you're putting on 100, you're kind of like putting on like you know three days worth of DEET. But there's good, you know, 45 and 50% ones and 30% ones that I've used. Mm-hmm. You know, now my kid, now my kids are older. I kind of put the 30 on, but before that, we didn't put anything on and just try to keep them away from the mosquitoes. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's what's going on. You're putting on the DEET, and then the um, ticks just don't like it because I remember a time in Illinois, I was eating lunch and I had a tick, and it was when I somehow was still wearing shorts. Right. I watched while I ate my lunch watch this tick crawl on my socks and it got up to my legs where I had bug spray well my of course my socks and shoes and everything were soaked in bug spray but my legs also had it on too and it was just walking up and it would find a little spot and it would bite and then it would you know I guess taste nasty and it would crawl like a few more centimeters and then it would bite and then it would crawl a little more and Mm. bite and I watched that for about 20 minutes so I just don't think they like the flavor of DEET so it's not that uh, they're getting poisoned or whatever. They just are less likely to bite someone who's soaked in DEET. Bill, were you not worried about Lyme's di- Lyme's disease? Dude, I was so it was so hot, man. <laughs> I was just like sitting there exhausted, eating a bologna sandwich. There was like mosquitoes on me all around. I had just gone into like a zen-like trance, like only three more hours, you know. Yeah, no, I was I was worried about that, but I'm not joking. Like if you look, there the things like mouth wasn't even actually going into my skin it was literally like i guess tasting the deet and then crawling to a spot and then never found one that was delicious well bill i i didn't start with 100 percent deet on that project i gradually moved to 100 percent deet because nothing else was working you know I, was, I started with just like regular bug spray and then sunscreen and the mosquitoes were like fuck that this stuff is tasty so they would just go on and you know keep on biting me and 
was just uh, it was ridiculous yeah uh, it was ridiculous but one of the things when we're talking about insects I, I know these aren't insects but like arachnids and spiders and things like that is it helps to understand also um, the area you're working in so when i first worked down in florida the banana spider if you've ever seen a freaking banana spider they're oh the scariest God. looking spider you've ever seen in your life right i mean they're pro- they can get up to the females i think it's the the typical thing in the spider um community where the female's huge and the male's tiny um but the females i mean they get up to you know sometimes two inches in length or more right oh. they're just sitting on their web and i'll never forget <laughs> before i knew anything about them i'm driving with this other girl we're in this uh we're in this ford explorer and we're driving through this like um like grassy area um in with two high walls of vegetation on either side. And we're just trying to find this one area we're going to. And we're driving through and right in the middle of the road, right at like window level was the biggest spider web I've ever seen with a huge freaking spider sitting right in the middle of it. Right. So we stopped and it was like a standoff and we're like, maybe he'll move. And we started getting closer. We honked our horn. We were hoping it would go off the web or something. Cause we were both totally freaked out. Cause we were little, little pansies myself included. And uh, so eventually I just gunned it. And we floored it, but then when we got to where we were going, neither of us wanted to get out because we were pretty sure that spider was on the roof waiting for us. So, um, but either way, my point is, my point is, two things that I experienced that were totally scary in the southeast. One is those spiders, and the other one is the black snake. Right? The black oh snake yeah, can be three, four, five feet long. Right? But neither of those things are poisonous or venomous. Right? Neither of them are. So the banana spider. It, I mean, it's got fangs, but it's not going to kill you, right? And it's probably not even going to bite you, right? Um, it just looks scary. And that's part of the thing with the animal kingdom. It's it's flashy and yellow and bright, and it looks scary because it doesn't have any venom. So, um, And then the black snake, also scary looking, but also won't kill you, right? Nothing like a rattlesnake or something like that. So once you learn something a little more about what you're working around, you can, um, you know, you can, I guess, mitigate your fears or something like that and not be so... Um, not be so afraid of it. So we're going to take another quick break and when we come back, um, I'm going to talk about alligators real quick because fuck alligators. And then, uh, uh, and then we'll move on. Hi everyone. This is Christopher Dorr with Heritage Business International. And here's this week's Heritage Business Tip from the archive. This week, we look at the importance of innovation. Become the Uber of the heritage industry. Set a goal to innovate just one disruptive product or service this year. It's much harder than you think, but if you're successful, you'll be set to dominate the industry. To receive our most up-to-date heritage business tips, you can subscribe to our free weekly email at heritagebusiness.org. Until next time, this is Christopher Dorr. Okay, we're back for our final segment. We're moving through some of this stuff, so we might uh, we might get a lot of it done. So, anyway, real quick, we're gonna go. Uh, Doug is gonna talk about Lyme disease because we haven't really talked about ticks. Um, you know, we all know ticks are crazy and bad and things like that, but uh, but ticks can also instead of just sucking and I mean like literally sucking and and attaching themselves to your skin, they can give you nasty diseases, just like mosquitoes can. Um, Mosquitoes can give you Zika virus, as we're hearing in the news, which we didn't really talk about much. Um, Just avoid mosquitoes. That's really all you got to know. But ticks, ticks, Doug. Yeah, so actually Lyme disease is something that we have here in Scotland as well. Um, And you mainly find it in places like Michigan, the Northeast. Um, You get a lot from deer ticks. Um, But unfortunately, it's actually exploding. They're getting a lot more... Because of global warming, um, you're getting a lot more cases of Lyme disease, and it is just a horrendously bad disease. Um, basically, you'll you'll know you have it when on your probably your shoulder, your arm, you'll get what they call the bullseye, and you may not get this. So you may get Lyme disease, and I'll have to do a, a test to to tell it. But the sort of telltale sign is you get this sort of bullseye, which is sort of a red circle. Um, looks a little bit like a bullseye, that's the term, um, on your shoulder. And that's when you know you're kind of screwed because um, Lyme's disease, it never goes away. It will resurface, you know, five, ten years later or even just every couple of months. Um, there's some people it just decimates. Basically, you, you end up with all sorts of, you know, body aches, um, lethargic, headaches, 
basically it's like being sick um, nonstop and it never, there is no cure for it and it never goes away and it can just pop up randomly every couple of years. So you could, you could experience the symptoms, get better. Um, and the symptoms can last for months, if not years on at a time. And then you could wait a couple of years and they could pop right back up. So it's, it's something like if you're in an area that has Lyme's disease, Oh man. Um, like, yeah, Bill, when you were saying like you're in Michigan and that was happening, I was just thinking like, Oh, Bill, you're so lucky. Um, you can get Lyme's like, it's just a horrendously bad disease. And that's, that's one of the areas where you can catch it as well. Um, if you're working in an area with ticks, check to see if, if Lyme, Lyme disease is something in that area. And if it is like, do everything, duct tape all, you know, your, your boots to your, your pants, um, gloves, anything. You really just do not want to catch Lyme's disease. I was in Illinois. So, but I mean, yeah, if you're from the mountains, same difference. <laughs> but in Illinois, yeah. So at the time when I was letting that tick bite like that, I actually did not know that there was Lyme disease. Uh, I didn't know that that was something you could get. That was right when I was first starting to do archaeology. So nowadays, I probably would not let a tick bite me like that unless I did have the same heat exhaustion. You know, I don't know. You never know. But I probably wouldn't let a tick bite me anymore. However, in that same area, that Illinois area, a little while ago, I read about two more tick-borne viruses, and I actually wrote a blog post about it. Um, one's called uh, Heartland Virus, and it, it's um, spread through uh, the Lone Star Tick and other tick, and it seems like tick or mosquito bites. Um, and then another one called Bourbon Virus. And so both of these are coming from Kansas, Missouri, Tennessee, and only a few people have gotten them, but they died. Um, and so no one uh, really even knew um, that they had this kind of disease. It's just recently been documented by the CDC. Uh, I suggest you check them out somewhere because no one really knows uh, how, th how this happens. Um, they know that it comes from tick bites, but we don't really know anything about the virus. We don't know if it's a variation of Lyme disease or any of the other existing tick-borne diseases. But you're right, Doug. we got to protect ourselves from those kind of animals. Yeah. All right. So watch out for ticks. <laughs> That's the big thing. You can get little tick removal kits. Um, people will tend to burn them off sometimes. Um, I know you've got to be careful because if you pull a tick off the wrong way, it's little pinchers and stuff can still be stuck in your skin and still injecting you with whatever nasty stuff they've got. So watch out for that. Um, if you can, have a friend do it for you. Uh, I remember I had a friend who uh, called me one time. She was in another state. I don't know if she's on a crew where she just wasn't comfortable with the people in that crew or something like that but she said she got home and there were like 15 ticks in her back and she couldn't reach them and she was freaking out and i eventually oh. got her to yeah i eventually got her to just have one of the other people on the crew help her out with that and i was like you you you've got to get this taken care of you know you, you can't just leave them there and um so yeah get uh if you're in an area with with ticks get familiar with at least one person on your crew enough to where you guys can maybe check each other out because sometimes those ticks will get in places where you just can't see them. You can't, you maybe be able to feel them, but you can't do anything about them. Um, so, you know, and, and also keep in mind ticks like the, the sort of hot, dark, warm areas of your body, if you know what I mean. So check those really well. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, well, before you move on, does the same stuff that does the same stuff that works on ticks also keep you from getting chiggers? That I don't know. That I don't know. I mean, they're in the same sort of family, aren't they? Well, I know that the same bug sprays they listed all on there, but in Arizona, they there's some chiggers like uh, further south in the grassland areas, but really, that's kind of like an Illinois and Midwest, Virginia, Southeast thing. You notice how I just rolled like you know half of the country into one. That's a, that's a <laughs> flatlander thing, right? Where they have grass and water and stuff. That's mm -hmm. that's what that happens there. But I've known people who've gotten chiggers before, and it is it sounds to me like just as bad, if not worse, than a tick bite. Except for you know you can get serious diseases from ticks. I don't know if you can get the same thing from chiggers. But if anyone's listening to this and they know about chiggers, give us a call, hit us up. We'd love to know more how to keep. Uh, keep ourselves from getting rashes from chigger bites you know one more thing on ticks too that i just remembered is the little tick ball 
um, the little seed ticks. They they like to be in a in a tightly packed little ball of ticks that are just like their little it's a little orgy of tickness right there. And um, you, if you touch that or brush up against that, it will literally just explode ticks all over you. Um, it's pretty nasty and avoid it. Know what it looks like and avoid it because I tend to just. I tend to just crash through vegetation when I'm doing stuff, you know, like especially in the southeast. You know, you're just like you want to get to your next shovel test and just like, bam, I got to walk in a straight line. I'm going to crash through this stuff and go. Um, and it's uh, it's not a good idea sometimes. You need to really know what you're looking for and know what's in your area. And, and kind of the whole point of all this stuff, is, especially if you're new in that area, ask your crew chief or ask, you know, some of the, the project manager, somebody that actually works in that company full time and say, what's what's here? What have you guys heard of? You know, what kind of diseases do the animals have? What, uh, you know, what do I need to be worried about? Because if you get a tick bite or a mosquito bite or something like that, and there's some nasty disease like in your area right now, you might have to get checked out. And, and that should be covered under workers' comp would be my guess. Don't quote me on that. But if you get a bite at work, that should be covered under workers' comp if you have to go and get it checked out and make sure you don't have some nasty disease related to that. So, yeah. So, um, and it sucks, but you know, usually if you're you're in a place with there's ticks, it's usually somewhat wider than um, other places. But the sort of full length waterproof, so you know those like waterproof um, overalls and stuff that mm -hmm. sometimes are actually just a full boot as well. Um, we use those out in Scotland. I mean, mainly because it rains a lot, but it is really good at keeping off ticks and other bugs. Um, you. Sometimes you'll be walking out in the forest and you'll be going through vegetation. You'll just hear pop, pop, pop. And then if you look down, you'll actually see it's the, uh, the ticks jumping off the branches trying to land on you, um, which is a scary as hell and, and completely disconcerting. But it really – it may be very hot, especially if you're in the summer and it's you know humid and, and stuff like that. And you, you just want to strip down to wherever you know, loosest possible clothes, you know, it's – really not a good idea it's better to just drink a lot of water and stew in your sweat than um end up with some horrible disease right indeed okay all good points um let's uh let's again touch on some some other animals real fast that you might be encounter in your field work travels and i'd love to hear about the stuff that we don't cover or anybody's stories i want to hear people's stories about their encounters with these animals so the scariest one for me that I can think of, aside from from uh, rattlesnakes, which kind of get a little routine sometimes in different areas. I mean, sure, rattlesnakes are never routine, but I don't know. You know what I mean. Um, but one of the first things I really encountered in the field when I was working in archaeology was freaking alligators, okay? And this is the same horrible project down in southern Florida that I was just talking about <clears throat> a couple segments ago. And, I mean, basically uh, – the crappy thing, the scary thing about alligators is, sure, they'll they'll typically just run away if they hear you crashing through something. And you're you're when we were coming through the sugarcane fields, you would hear this crash and a splash, and they jump into the canal right next to it, right? And because this these were abandoned sugarcane fields, the canals weren't maintained, so the the water level in the canal was right up to the edge, and they were totally muddy, so you couldn't see through the water at all. So the alligators like to sit on the surface, and then they would jump into the water when they heard you crashing. But the thing about alligators is when they get scared, they're only scared for a couple seconds. And then their little beady eyes and their little beady nose nostrils pop out of the water, and they just start kind of slowly floating towards you. And if you're standing next to that dike and you're not paying attention, they'll just jump up and grab you. So one of the one of the quick stories I have about that is I was trying to find this place I was supposed to be monitoring um, when I was on that project with the sugarcane fields. And they were building these massive dikes around the area because they are planning on flooding the whole area. That's why we were out there and, and turning it into a water reservoir. And uh, so I'm standing next to this dike that's probably 20 feet across. And then on the other side of the dike is a uh, – on the other side of the, um, the canal, I'm sorry. I was standing across a 20-foot-wide canal. And on the other side of that canal was a dike that was probably 30 feet high. And on the top of that was a bulldozer. And the bulldozer operator was standing out on the treads pointing and telling me which roads to take to get to where I needed to go because I'd, I'd done some monitoring with him before. And I, I was slowly walking towards him because he was difficult to hear. And I was walking in this mud, you know, it was because the canal water was right up to the edge. And I don't know how, how close I was to the canal, but I was getting closer and closer without really knowing it. And at the end of the conversation, since I'm kind of looking up, I wasn't looking down because he was up on that dike. He goes, oh, and you better watch out for that alligator in front of you. Just like as part of the conversation. And I look down and I see these beady eyes and nostrils probably two feet in front of me 
on the biggest head I've ever seen in my life. And <laughs> I immediately threw myself backwards, promptly fell on my ass in the mud, rolled over, and like crawled out on hands and knees in the mud. I don't know how I didn't get my ass bit by an alligator at that point in time, but it scared the crap out of me. So I don't know if you guys have ever worked on alligators, around alligators, but it's totally, um, totally freaky and scary. So uh, yeah, just don't do it. Your stories are basically making it sound like I should fly in, go to Disney World, and then leave right away. Like, don't get out of yeah. Disney World. Don't get out of your car. Dude, I don't, I don't like Florida. If you, if you're getting what I'm saying here, like, I don't like Florida. They, going to the SAs was really tough for me. Like, I, I stayed in the hotel. You know, I didn't go outside much. I was just like, screw this place. I, I can't stand Florida. And yeah, sorry, sorry, Floridians out there, but I just, it's not for me. Yeah, um, no joke. Since you almost got eaten by like everything they have there. Oh, I know. And, and then the other, the other crazy thing we would encounter occasionally are the wild boars. The wild boars and they're young. Um, they Sweet. Will stand their, they will stand their ground with their huge tusks, and they will just sit there and snort at you, and they'll charge at you if you're uh, if you're provoking them at all. So, yeah. All right. The, so let's move to yeah. The snakes in Arizona are the. That's, that's what we're going the, to next. Yeah. <laughs> so. Tell, tell us about the nasty snakes in Arizona. Phil. Yeah, so I think there's like four rattlesnakes, poisonous r- rattlesnakes in Arizona, and I've seen all of them except for the <laughs> Sidewinder and the yeah. Diamondback. There's a reason why the baseball team is called the Diamondbacks because they're like everywhere. And, uh, um, you know, at my house, I do my best to keep mice and other things away from the house because the snakes will figure out that there's mice there. And then, you know, my kids are like, you know, the next thing they're going to bite. But with rattlesnakes, it seems like springtime is their mating time and that's when they're actually kind of freewheeling and all over the place but uh and also you know really active and ready to bite but most of the time the uh you know you're gonna see rattlesnakes like all the time in arizona the Mm -hmm. southwest you're gonna see them you know probably if you're actually paying a lot of attention and you're in the right uh area you're gonna see one like every week but most of the time, you're far enough away that it's not really that big of a deal. Um, the only problem is when you are in that two foot range, uh, they'll rattle, they'll buzz, and then they'll you know you're you're gonna have to move fast. So like, first of all, you're supposed to be looking for archaeology sites anyway, right? So if you're already paying attention to that, then look for stuff like rattlesnakes too. Uh, and also, don't be crazy about going near bushes and stuff. I know it's hot, but don't go underneath trees and shade and stuff like that because that's exactly where they're going to be at yep. if you're in the flat flatlands. And then the other concern is when you're scrambling up rocks or you know in kind of rocky areas, mountainous terrain, because then you really actually can't tell. Every time that I've been buzzed by rattlesnakes, it was when I was trying to climb up over a rock, like a hill or something like that, or a rocky area, and they were you know I got too close. Because most of the time, if you see it, you just literally walk a few feet away unless you're crazy you just keep walking away Mm -hmm. just get away from it right yeah so they're not really that big of a but i do know a lot of people who have been buzzed by them and a couple people who have actually been like uh they've snapped at them before i haven't known any thank god no one at my on my crew or whatever has been bit Mm -hmm. but they do snap at you and i don't know if we're supposed to fill out a close call thing because like that happens so often that it's almost not even a call like you said it gets routine kind of you know you just hear a rattlesnake the, the shit gets scared out of you you step back you get away from it obviously take a few minutes to get okay you know you're safe you made it and then keep going and like i said during their mating season you really got to watch mm-hmm. but um yeah just don't met the um if you look at the rattlesnake bite you know the amount of so two things um we the uh anti-venin for rattlesnakes they don't actually necessarily know if there's a correlation between the anti-venin and actually you getting saved by it because the people who die from rattlesnakes usually don't go to the hospital where they give them the anti-venin, right? right? So everybody who dies from a rattlesnake bite and they were given the anti-venin, they don't really know if it works, basically, <laughs> because the, there's a lot of people who die who never even actually yeah. get it, right? But most people that are adults don't die from getting a rattlesnake bite. Um, you can get really sick, you can get um, all kinds of uh, bacterial infections and stuff, but we're pretty large animals, so it's not really enough to kill you. However, the Mojave Rattler is 
it gives you the most load. You, and if you're allergic to it, you're probably going to mm-hmm. die too. And then the the other thing is most people who get bit by a rattlesnake were messing with the rattlesnake. So if you don't mess with rattlesnakes, you're less likely to get bit. And it just really it boils down to that. You see a rattlesnake, you just get out of their way. Know where they like to hide at what time of the day and just don't go there. Yeah. And I think I think we're going to end up closing here on rattlesnakes because we've got two minutes to go. But, um, you know, in the last project I was on, we had sometimes several snakes a day that were seen. And not just seen, but like uh, uh, snapped at people, um, you know, from under the truck because they like it where it's cool under there, especially in the hot desert sun or like you said, under a bush or something like that. Um, in fact, a lot of my guys went and bought, um, went and bought snake gators, snake gator boots. So the, like the, the knee high boots you can get that are supposed to be rattlesnake proof. Um, I mean, the thing Uh with the rattlesnake is though, these big ones out in the desert, I mean, it might not be jumping at your leg. It could jump at your hand. It could jump up, you know, all the way up to your waist or something like that. And just, you know, mouth open, bam, get you. So you really do have to just be aware of where they're at and and which sometimes you can't do anything about encountering a rattlesnake but you can mitigate your circumstances once you get to the rattlesnake you know like you said bill don't don't go near them i forgot to mention the gators and uh seriously those will yeah. protect you i mean the the teeth may go through the actual um what is it like the nylon kevlar, or the leather. kevlar yeah. if you have the leather ones yeah so the teeth may actually go into that or may go through it or something like that mm-hmm. i've heard stories of them going into that and then the person you know killed the rattlesnake because it was stuck to its leg or whatever but uh yeah those snake gators if you're in rattlesnake country think about it just go ahead and wear it i know your leg is just (laughs) going to be pouring with sweat you know and it's going to be so uncomfortable to wear them but seriously if they're everywhere and you don't think that you're going to have a chance to see it or you're going through grass just wear the snake Mm -hmm. gators yeah it's always a good call um, especially, you know, you got to look at your area too. Like we, we'd called the local hospital to make sure they did have the anti-venom, um, just in case. Um, but the problem is like, we were on a military base and they were like, you know what, we're, we're not really going to fly a helicopter out there to get to you. You know, you can call us, but it might take an hour for a helicopter to get to you because it's not just sitting on standby waiting. So, um, you know, and then it was an hour and a half drive out for us. So we, I actually had snake bite kits for, for each of the crews, um, which can help. I mean, some of this stuff. May or may not work. Who knows? But it's but it's good to have it. And it's good to know how to use it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's better than nothing. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and also, if you've never been bit by a rattlesnake, which is 99.9% of everybody right. in the world, just take some Benadryl if you can actually, you know, stop from spazzing out long enough to swallow a pill or whatever. It's probably a good idea because you don't know if you're allergic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Benadryl is going to be enough to, you know, save you or whatever, but I try to carry a couple of, you know, gel caps and a, and a couple of the other uh, solid ones in case someone gets bit by a, um, uh, a bee and they don't know if they're yeah. allergic. So hopefully someone who's actually allergic to a bee has their rights, their EpiPen and everything <laughs> else. But for those people who have only been bit once or never bit before, you know, they probably should just go ahead and take mm-hmm. some Benadryl because... That hopefully will be enough for you to start seeing that that individual is having an allergic reaction and give you just that tiny bit more. And like I said, I don't know if Benadryl is going to help, you know, someone who's bit with a rattlesnake or whatever. But, hey, we got to get to the hospital anyway, and it's not going to happen in five Mm -hmm. minutes. So might as well just start doing the snake bite kit (laughs) and Benadryl and like whatever the hell else you can do, you know, except for they say sucking the poison out doesn't work. Yeah. No, don't do that. I don't want to do that anyway. So like first aid is um, if someone gets bit and actually quite a few rattlesnakes, the ones you have to worry about most are the smaller ones because they're young and they tend to use a lot of venom and don't have great control. But actually a lot of snake bites, you get bit and nothing really happens because they haven't injected venom into you. Um, but if you do basically get – so Bill, your, your sort of handkerchief um, idea – Basically, you take that and above the the bite, so if it's on your arm or your leg, you loosely tie it there. So you want to be able to fit your fingers in between the tie, but you basically want to slow down um, the spread. And the person who got bit should not move as much as possible. So you it's going to get into your bloodstream, and the less you know, you freak out, which is a bit hard to do when you've just been bitten by a snake. But the less you move, the less you're going to be pushing the uh, poison throughout your entire body if you did get it. So. If possible, if you have a crew, have them carry the other person and have them move at least amount as possible and tie off something, some sort of big clothing above the bite um, to try to slow down the spread. And then, yeah, basically call in 
for 911 and see if they'll send out a helicopter or get him to the car as quickly as possible. All right. Well, we're going to close down this podcast. I really do want to hear everybody's stories. Um, you know, put something in the comments or on Facebook since you probably just read the title of this podcast and didn't actually make it this far and you're commenting now. But, um, you know, please listen. And uh, and we've got a lot of stuff that we want to still cover, but we'll probably do that on additional shows. We'll add some more stuff to it and we'll we'll get to it. We'll bring some other people in to talk about it, too. And maybe we'll, um, you know, when you tell us your stories, let us know if we can read those on the on the website, because one of the best ways to learn for uh, in this field is to learn from other people, learn from other people's mistakes. So, you know, a lot of this stuff that's been encountered has been already been encountered by somebody else. And um, you know, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. So let's learn from each other. All right. Well, that's about it. So, uh, like I said, go ahead and comment and, uh, we'll see you in the field. Thanks. That's it for another episode of the CRM archeology span podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM arc podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRM arc podcast or you can tag at arcpodnet in your tweet please share the link to the show wherever you saw it if you share crm archaeology related items on twitter or facebook or anywhere else for that matter be sure to use the hashtag crm arc so the community can see and comment if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast you can do so on itunes or on stitcher radio you can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way don't forget to go over to itunes and leave a review of the show it helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This show was produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.